If you have a Bible this morning, please take it out. Uh, If you want to follow along, I'm not sure if they're going to put something up on the screen or not. It's not a very long passage. I'm sure this is a very familiar passage to you. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So if you have trouble following along as we read the scriptures together, you shouldn't have any trouble with this one uh, verse this morning. So 1 Corinthians 10, And verse 31, this is God's word. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for your grace and your mercy to us. How grateful we are that Where our sins have increased, your grace has super increased. And so, Father, we come this morning to thank you. We come to ask that you would draw near to us and that you, by your Holy Spirit, really would meet with us, your people, this morning. Take this word of yours, Father, and drive it into our hearts and minds like nails into a piece of wood, that it might stick and stay there, and that we might love you more deeply, and we might live more faithfully as a result. We come in the name of Jesus, and we come for his sake. Amen. I've entitled this morning's message, Soli Deo Gloria. If you know anything at all about the Protestant Reformation, you'll know there are five Latin phrases that have been used to kind of summarize what the... Uh, the Reformation was all about. Those five Latin phrases, actually, uh, with the church where I pastored in Gulfport, Mississippi, was destroyed in Hurricane Katrina. And uh, there was a fellowship hall we had. We lost the entire facility. We had about 58 families in the church that lost everything. It was uh, quite uh, a 12-year uh, ministry of rebuilding and, and the rest. It was uh, a lot of pain, a lot of struggle. But we saw the Lord, as inevitably we do in times of hardship. We saw the Lord in amazing ways. But in the fellowship hall of the church that I never preached in, because the hurricane came right at the very beginning of my ministry, uh, were five banners. And the congregation, for their 100-year anniversary, had hung these banners in the fellowship hall, one for every uh, one of the five points of the Reformation. And so we had uh, sola scriptura. Uh, by scripture or scripture alone, uh, sola gratia, uh, by grace alone, sola fide, by grace, uh, by faith, uh, uh, by grace alone, by faith alone, uh, sola uh, solo Christo, uh, by Christ alone, and then soli Deo Gloria. I think I got all five of those. If I uh, wasn't counting those, but I think that's all five of them. Uh, and so, so soli Deo Gloria. I entitled this message that because it, it is uh, talking about that all of life for us as Christians, ought to be lived unto the glory of God and unto the glory of God alone. That that is the central purpose and ought to be the central purpose, driving purpose of our lives as believers. As I thought about Soli Deo Gloria, though, I thought about how this is not the most important, should we say, of the five solas of the Reformation. We would say maybe sola fide or solo Christo would be the most important because that is where our salvation hangs, that we are justified or we are accepted in God's sight by faith and by faith alone. It's not by faith plus our works. It's not by faith or anything else that you and I might do. It's by faith and by faith in Christ alone. 
And so those two solas may well be the most important for us as believers. Soli Deo Gloria doesn't fall into that same category. And yet, as I thought about Soli Deo Gloria, I couldn't help but think that maybe Soli Deo Gloria may be, it may be just the most relevant to our day and time. Not the most important, but it may be the most relevant. Listen to what David Wells said many years ago in one of his books. It is one of the defining marks of our time that God is now weightless. I do not mean by this that he is ethereal, but rather that he has become unimportant. He rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He has lost his saliency for human life. Those who assure the pollsters of their belief in God's existence may nonetheless consider him less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than their appetites for affluence and influence, his judgment no more awe-inspiring than the evening news, and his truth less compelling than the advertiser's sweet fog of flattery and lies. That is weightlessness. It is a condition we have assigned to God after having nudged him out to the periphery of our secularized life. His truth is no longer welcome in our public discourse. The engine of modernity rumbles on and he is but a speck in its path. When David Wells talks about weightlessness, or that God has lost his weightiness, he's talking about the, the glory of God being diminished or the glory of God not being seen. If you know anything at all about the Old Testament roots to the word glory, you'll know that it really means weightiness or heaviness or significance. And so when David Wells is talking about how in our world, the world in which we live, God is now weightless, what he's saying is that God is no longer seen to be glorious. He's no longer seen to be significant. He's no longer seen to matter. And part of the problem there is that you and I as Christians, the way we've been living our lives has not been communicating to the world around us that God is weighty. And so I think this is really one of the most relevant topics for us to consider it's relevant to the world in which we live, we live in because he's not seen to be glorious. He's not seen to be heavy, to be weighty. It's relevant for you and me as believers because every time we sin, in effect, we show the world how insignificant God is. Because sin at its root is really rebellion against God. And so every time we sin, that's what we're showing the world, is that I love me or I love the world more than I love the Lord. That his glory is masked. It's hidden. His weightiness is trivialized every time you and I sin. And so, in a real sense, this is, I think, one of the most relevant topics that we can talk about. And I want to do so just in terms of unpacking what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 10, 31. And there are three things I want to look at this morning. When we think about what Paul is saying, 
and trying to understand how it is that you and I are to live so that we make God look weighty to a world that doesn't see him as being weighty, to a world that doesn't see him as being significant. How can you and I live so that we show that he really is significant? You know, God is the most glorious being in all of the universe. And he calls you and me not to make him who is insignificant look significant. But he calls you and me to make him who is altogether significant look something like he really is. So how do we do that? And what does that look like in our lives? Three things. First, When Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, the first thing that he's saying is that you and I need to do things in a certain way. I think that's plain from what Paul is saying here. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Paul is saying that everything we do whether it's even something as mundane as eating and drinking, is to be done unto the glory of God. It's to be done to his glory. It's to be done to make him look significant. So that when you and I do something as mundane as eating and drinking, we're to do it in such a way that God looks big, that God looks weighty, that God looks significant. Part of the problem, just to set the stage here for you in 1 Corinthians that Paul was dealing with, is there was a problem in the Corinthian church. Christians were going into pagan idol temples, and they were eating and drinking food that had been offered to pagan idols. And so they had an eating and drinking problem. And so Paul was saying, even when it comes down to something as mundane, something as insignificant, seemingly, as eating and drinking, we're to do that in such a way that God looks mighty and weighty. Maybe it means that we don't overeat. Maybe it means we eat the right things and we don't eat the wrong things. Maybe it means we watch what we drink. We don't overindulge. But Paul says it doesn't just apply to eating and drinking. It applies to everything we do, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. We're to do all for the glory of God. So that even... The way we brush our teeth or comb our hair, right? Uh, we're to do it in a certain way. I mean, even that, that minute of an issue, that, if you will, basic. How many of us that woke up this morning thinking that it matters how we brush our teeth, right? But Paul's trying to say, that's the Christian life. It's everything. It's everything that we do. We're to do it in a certain way. We're to do it in a way that might make God look weighty. We drive to church. We do our jobs. The whole, the whole thing that we see on Facebook that says, you know, oh, it's Monday morning and I've got to go back to work again, right? Or thank goodness it's Friday, Right? Because I can't get I can't wait for the weekend. That's the wrong attitude. We are to work, we're to do our jobs in such a way that God looks weighty. We're to love our spouses. We're to 
take care of our lawns. We're to do everything we do. Play sports. How many of you have ever played on a sports team, a church sports team? Right? There's some laughter because you know what I'm talking about. Because church sports leagues are oftentimes far worse than any other out there. There's, there's a competitive uh, meanness, in a sense, right, in those church uh, sports leagues. But even when we play sports, we're to do it in a way that makes God look weighty. You see how relevant this really is in our lives. But Paul, thankfully, in laying this out, he doesn't tell us here, but I think he would want us to remember that even as we think about how all-encompassing Paul's message is here for us, that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do all for the glory of God. When we think about that, we realize how far short we fall. So I don't know about you, but I don't always talk to my wife in a way that makes God look weighty. I don't always drive to church or anywhere else for that matter in a way that makes God look weighty. I don't always, I don't even, I, I rarely think of the Lord while I'm brushing my teeth, right? But we think about how all encompassing this is and how significant, how weighty this command really is. That everything we do, we're to do it in a way that makes God look significant. It ought to show us our need for forgiveness. It ought to show us how much we have fallen short and how much we need to be forgiven. Praise God for the cross. Praise God that Jesus came into the world and he took all of my sin upon himself. Praise God that he took all of my failures in doing everything in my life to make him look weighty. He took all of that upon himself and he died so that we might be set free. And we need to remember that this morning. But Paul is not simply laying out for us that the way we do things is important. He's also telling us that we need to do certain things and not do Other things. When Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, certainly Paul doesn't mean that all things are possible. All things are permissible. Paul certainly doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what we do. So long as we do it in a God-glorifying way. So long as we do it in a way that makes God look weighty. We can't go out and commit adultery and expect that God's going to be seen as weighty through that endeavor. We can't lie, cheat, or steal and think that God is somehow going to be glorified in that kind of behavior. So what we do is important, not just the way we do it, but what we do is important. And so when Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God, he doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what you do, right? He means we need to do what God wants us to do. We we can't lie, cheat, and steal and make God look significant because God has said, thou shalt not. Thou shalt not lie, cheat, and steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. So 
the way we honor God or the way we make him look significant in our lives is by living according to what he has said to do and by not doing what he has said not to do. Okay? So far, so good. I doubt that any one of us here would have any kind of trouble with that, right? Most of us here would say, well, obviously, when God says don't do something, we shouldn't do it. We can't expect to, do, to go against what God says and somehow honor him or, or make him look significant. What about where the Bible is silent? What about where the Bible doesn't speak to things that, we, that so dominate and, 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 and affect our lives? Um, the Bible doesn't tell us many things. The Bible doesn't tell us how to vote. The Bible doesn't tell us whether or not we can watch a rated R movie. The Bible doesn't tell us how to do math, how to speak a foreign language, how to plow a field. There's so much in our lives that the Bible doesn't directly speak to. We would all say that where the Bible says don't do this, we don't do it to, in order to make God look weighty. Where the Bible says, do this, we do it in order to make God look weighty and significant, to give him glory and honor. But what about where the Bible is silent? Because most of our lives falls into that area. Most of our lives falls into that area. And there, I think, there's some help in this passage you remember, this is the issue that Paul's dealing with. Here we have in the Corinthian church Christians who are going into pagan idol temples and they're eating and drinking food that's been offered to pagan idols and they're claiming Christian freedom to do this. The Bible doesn't say, thou shalt not eat and drink this food. The Bible doesn't say that. So these Corinthian Christians were claiming Christian freedom to be able to eat and drink this kind of thing. Most of our lives is in that very same area. And I think what Paul wants us to see is there's something more we need to ask besides as we're thinking through how do we make God look significant and how do we make God look weighty by the way we live. We need to ask more than is it scriptural? What does the Bible say? Look at verse 23 if you still have your Bibles open. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, verse 23, All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. What Paul seems to be saying here is that asking whether or not it's lawful is just one thing we need to ask. But you and I need to go beyond that. And we need to ask, is it helpful? Is it helpful? And I think that is the measure we need to use in our lives. When we're thinking about whether or not we can watch a rated R movie, and we're thinking we're going to claim Christian freedom because you know the Bible doesn't say that we should or we shouldn't watch a rated R movie. So we're thinking about that. We're thinking about who to vote for, or we're thinking about any number of issues, right? Should we chew tobacco? Should we smoke a cigarette? The Bible doesn't say explicitly, thou shalt not, right? 
But what, what criteria can we use as we're making these decisions in our lives? And I think this one thing is very helpful. It has been to me. And Paul seems to be saying, is it lawful? That's one thing. Does the Bible say it's lawful? But then there's another step, Paul says, is it helpful? Does it help you love Jesus? Does it help you love your spouse? Does it help you work the way God wants, in a God-glorifying way when you're at work? Does it help you to live the Christian life? Does it help you to love his word? Does it help you want to live it out in your life? And if whatever it is, if watching that rated R movie is going to help you do that, amen, brother, sister, go and do it, right? But the point I think we need to ask is not, so often we're in the situation where we ask, what's wrong with it? When we're thinking about something we want to do, we say, well, there's nothing wrong with it. The Bible doesn't say anything there's wrong. They're saying there's anything's wrong. Well, that's the wrong question. The question is not what's wrong with it. The question is, is it helpful? Will it help me to love Jesus more? Will it help me to love my wife? Or my job? Will it help me to live more faithfully? Will it help me to love his word? Will it help me to do that? And if it does, do it. And so I think what Paul is trying to charge us to see when he says that we're to do everything in our lives in such a way that God looks weighty, that he looks significant, it means that we do, uh, we do everything in our lives in a certain way. But it also means we do certain things and not others. We do the things that are commanded in his word, and we do those things that are helpful in living out the Christian life. But thirdly, Paul, I think, wants us to see more than just we do things in a certain way, we do certain things and not others, but that we find our joy in Christ. I think that is perhaps the most important or the most difficult issue for me to get my head around, my heart around in my own life. As I've gotten older, I've found that the hardest thing in the Christian life is to find my joy in Christ and not in the things of this world. I want to find my joy in my health. I want to find my joy in my resume, my reputation. I want to find my joy in what other people think about me. I want to find my joy in my marriage or in how my children are doing, right? Those things, that's where the world, it it pulls me in that direction to find my joy and my happiness here in the things of this world. And the older I get, the more I find that a struggle. Partly because the older I get, uh, you lose your appearance, you lose your looks, not that I ever had them, but you lose your, your health, you begin losing people you love, you begin experiencing more and more hardship, more and more struggle the older we get. And when those hardships come, you know, it's easy to love Jesus when you've got everything, when you've got health, and you've got wealth, and you've got success. And everything's going well. It's easy to be a Christian, in a sense, relatively. But when you start losing all of those things, that's where the rubber meets the road. And in order for us to live, I think this is one of the reasons why the church has been relatively ineffective 
at showing the world how weighty God really is. Because we haven't been finding our joy in Christ. We've been finding our joy in the things of the world. And as long as things are going well, we're happy and we're fine. And when things fall apart, we're not. We've not been showing the world that there's something radically different about us, that we love Jesus even when things are caving in and falling in all around us. Some of you will know Ligon Duncan. Ligon is my boss uh, now uh, at RTS. He was uh, my boss, um, mentor uh, at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi for many years. But I was with Ligon not too long ago, and he told me a story that um, I'll share with you this morning. It's from a long time ago when he was uh, actually ministering in Yazoo City, Mississippi. And he walked into the hospital. There was someone from the church that was in the hospital. Her uh, two-year-old son was dying. And Ligon went to visit her in the hospital. And he walked into the hospital room, and she was sitting in a rocking chair holding her two-year-old son, just rocking him and holding him as he struggled to breathe. And as Ligon walked in, the child took his last breath and died right there in his mother's arms. And Ligon said he just stood there. And the mother looked up at Ligon, and the first thing she said was she said, Ligon, can we sing the doxology? Now, how do you do that? You see, it's when Christians do that kind of a thing. That's when we begin to show there's something different about us, that we don't find our joy in the things of the world like everyone else in the world does. But our joy is in something outside of this world, something otherworldly. Our joy is in Christ. And so when the things of this world, even something like a son, is taken from us. We can still say, Ligon, can we sing the doxology? That's what I find to be the hard part. And that's what I find to be so important. You know, when's the last time someone asked you for the reason, for the hope that is in you? Could it be they're not seeing anything different in you, in me, than they're seeing anywhere else? You see, I think this is the struggle. And praise God for Jesus, because I do not live this way. I struggle, and I fail. And I constantly have to be reoriented to find my joy in Christ and not in the things of this world. How many here know the Westminster Shorter Catechism question number one? Right? I see a few nods in the audience and the congregation. Um, the first question goes something like this, right? Um, what are the chief ends of man? Right? No. It's what is the chief end of man? And then what's the answer? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. 
there seems to be two answers. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But the question doesn't say what are the chief ends, plural, what are the chief purposes of man? It says what is the singular chief end? And then it gives two answers. What's up with that? You see, what they were trying to say is that those two things, glorifying God and enjoying him forever, are not two different things. They're one in the same. And that's our one chief end. That's our chief purpose in life. We glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what they were trying to say is these two things go together. When we find our joy in Christ and not in the things of this world, that's when God looks most weighty. Some of you will be familiar with John Piper. John has written much on this. Uh, I remember one time attending a conference in Scotland when I lived in Scotland where Piper came and spoke. And um, he called himself a seven-point Calvinist. Some of you will know what I'm talking about when I say that. Uh, and afterwards, I remember a friend of mine laughing and saying, he's not a seven-point Calvinist. He's a one-point Calvinist. He's got one point, and that's all he talks about. And that's true. It's a glorious point, right? And it's a point the church has, has missed for many years, many, many years, and has needed to hear. But Piper's whole point has been this issue. In fact, he, he says that we ought to change the wording of the Westminster Shorter Catechism question one. Rather than saying, what is the chief end of man, we ought to say, uh, or what, what the answer, it says uh, we glorify, uh, glorify God and enjoy him forever. Then we ought to change that so that it says to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And I think Piper's got a very important point that we need to hear. The answer is not by changing the catechism answer because that's what they meant when they wrote it. Not two different things, but one and the same. You glorify God and enjoy him together. That's our chief purpose in life. But what Piper's trying to get us to see is that God is most glorified in our lives when you and I are most enjoying him. When we're most satisfied in Christ. When we find our joy in Christ most, that's when God looks most weighty. He tells a story which I will rehearse for you. If you've read any of his books, you've probably seen this illustration. But it's a very helpful illustration. But Piper says, he says, imagine that I, it's my anniversary. And I go and I get a dozen roses for my wife. And I go home and I knock on the door because I want to surprise her with these dozen roses for our anniversary. And so I knock on the door, she answers, and I say, happy anniversary. And she sees the roses and she says, Johnny, why did you? He says, imagine if I answer, it's my duty. How well do you think that's going to go over? My wife's laughing because the door will be slammed in my face, right? It's my duty. Uh, isn't she honored by him doing his duty? She is, right? He could not be doing his duty, right? By the fact that he is celebrating his anniversary, right? And loving his wife, that's his duty. God calls him to love his wife and he's doing it. She is honored in that, but she's far more honored when he's doing his duty 
with every fiber of his being, and his heart, soul, mind, and strength is in it, right? And so he says the right answer is not, it's my duty. What's the right answer? I couldn't help myself, right? Because I'm just so in love with you, and there's nothing I'd rather do than to get these roses for you. In fact, go get dressed, because we're going to dinner tonight, and we're going to spend our time together tonight celebrating our anniversary. There's nothing I'd rather do. There's nowhere else I'd rather be than with you. Right? That's the right answer. Because in that moment, when he is most satisfied in his wife, she is most honored. And Piper says the same is true with God. It's when you and I find our joy in Christ most that God is seen to be most weighty. It's when something even as disastrous as losing a child happens. And we're able to show the world that we love Jesus more by saying, Ligon, can we sing the doxology? That's when the world sits up and takes notice. And that's when the world asks for the reason, for the hope that is in us. How do we do that? How do we find our joy in Christ? If, if, I wish there were an easy button, right? Just push that button and we can find our joy in Christ. How do we do that? If God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied and most enjoying him, how do we find our joy in Christ? So that if something like losing a child happens in our lives, we're able to respond in a God-glorifying way and not in a, the way the rest of the world responds as well. How do we do that? Well, there's a lot we could say, but I'll share two things with you as we try to wrap this together. For me, as I've wrestled with getting older, as I've wrestled with myself, and as I've wrestled with finding my joy in Christ and not in the world, there are two things that have helped me in this struggle. One, you become like what you're around. And so I need to spend time with people who love Jesus and are, stri are striving to find their joy in Christ and not in the things of this world. So I read a lot of Christian biography because here you see someone that the final chapter's been written in their life. They're dead. They've lived their whole life. We're not wondering what's going to happen tomorrow or five years from now in their lives. Are there going, is there going to be some uh, serious sin? They're going to fall away, if you will, from the Lord. The final chapter's been written. And here you get, I get to get close and personal with someone and watch them strive through all of the ups and downs of life to find their joy in Christ and not in the things of this world. That's what church is all about, isn't it? We come together, and that's not what it's all about, but that's one of the things it's about, is we come together as brothers and sisters who love Christ and we come to spend our lives, share our lives together, to encourage one another to love Christ more, to love his word more, to live it out in our lives more. 
That's what small group Bible studies are about. That's what home groups are about. That's what whatever, whatever small group you're a part of, whatever part you're, a group you're a part of that will, where you're, you're known, that's what all those things are about. Trying to encourage one another because we come, become like what we're around. The second thing I would say that has helped me in this struggle to be, to find my joy in Christ is that we need to We need to meditate on the gospel. Now, that may sound obvious, um, but hear what I have to say here. What I don't mean is that we need to rehearse the facts of the gospel. Most of us who have been a Christian for any period of time will know the basic facts of the gospel message. I don't mean we just need to go over those facts of the gospel message uh, day in and day out in our lives. What I mean is we need to meditate on, if you, if you will, the power or the reality of the gospel message. The Puritans, 17th century Puritans, used to, used to differentiate between knowing the truth and knowing the power of the truth. There's a difference. We can know the facts of the gospel and not know the reality or the weight of the gospel. Not know it experientially. You can know it here and not know it here, right? Or know it with our whole bodies, right? There's a difference between knowing the truth and knowing the power of the truth. So what I say, when I say meditate on the gospel, what I mean is not just rehearsing the facts, but you and I need to remind ourselves of the power of the gospel message. So what that Jesus died? So what that he was raised again to new life? What does that really mean in our lives? And let's feel the weight of that in our lives. And when we can feel the weight of that, then joy comes as a result. Not automatically, but it comes. Not easily, but it comes. My favorite hymn, my wife was asking me on the way over here this morning as we were listening to music on the way over I think my favorite hymn is It Is Well With My Soul for a variety of reasons. But my favorite verse, if I had to pick one out of that hymn, is verse 3. I like uh, Verse 4 is awesome too. But verse 3 is, I think, what is my favorite. Verse 3 goes like this. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Isn't that what Horatio Spafford, who wrote that hymn, was doing? He wasn't just rehearsing the facts of the gospel message, but here... In the context, if you know the context in which he wrote that song, there's one where he lost, what, all of his children, if I remember correctly? And his wife made it through and wrote, wrote back with a telegram and said two words, I think, saved, alone, shipwreck. And his whole family who went over, uh, overseas ahead of him had died except for his wife. And he's writing this, this, this hymn to remind himself that even in that context, it is well with his soul. 
But that verse three, my sin, oh, the bliss. Oh, the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, it's not just part of my sin, praise, praise God, but all of my sin that was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. You see, we, we, we feel the weight of that. It ought to lead us to joy. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And I think if we can do that, we begin to show how weighty God is. We begin to show how significant he is because we're doing things in a certain way and we're doing certain things and not others. And in all that we're doing, we're striving to find our joy in Christ and not in the things of this world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you and praise you for this opportunity to gather together, to hear to, from your word. We ask, Father, that you'd remind us not only of the facts of the gospel, but that you would remind us of the power of the facts of the gospel. That even for a few moments, Father, this morning, you would help us to feel the weight, the bliss of this glorious thought that all of our sins have been nailed to the cross and we bear them no more. We're accepted in Christ forevermore. So that come what may, we can rejoice. And with our brother Horatio Spafford can say, it is well with our souls. Help us, Father, we pray, and forgive us when we fall short, for it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.